When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from our slightly different perspective. You know, the number of mental shifts that our community has made in regards to operating botanical-style aquariums is really remarkable. We deal with things like unusual aesthetics, acceptance of natural processes, which previously pretty much horrified everyone in the hobby, and we celebrate adding stuff to our tanks, which most hobbyists would simply laugh at, right? And that's just for starters. Cleanliness is something that gives me a lot to think about in the context of botanical style aquariums. I mean, when it comes to managing a botanical style aquarium, you're already sort of at a disadvantage when it comes to running a spotlessly clean aquarium. You've essentially committed to a tank which contains large quantities of natural materials, busily recruiting biofilms and fungal growth, all the while in the process of breaking down. At any given time, the bioload in your aquarium is likely as great or greater than a fully stocked community aquarium with lots of well-fed fishes. So it certainly makes sense to ask ourselves what the implication is of all this stuff breaking down in our tanks. Are we simply adding tons of organic materials in there for the beneficial bacteria to handle, or are we actually helping foster and feed a small food chain of organisms which collectively assimilate this material and the associated organic compounds that it produces? Or is it somewhere in between? There must be a thousand ways to set up an aquarium and operate it. In fact, there's probably several times that amount, and no one can ever seem to agree what the best way is. And that's okay. There are a lot of cool approaches you can try. So while we might disagree on the best approach or style, we all seem to have a common goal, providing the best possible environment for our fishes. Pretty much every really serious aquarium hobbyist can agree on one thing. It's important to have as much information about what's going on in his or her aquariums as possible. Observation, collection of data, and interpretation of the information gathered have been keys to our success in so many areas of endeavor in this hobby. And I admit, our botanical-style aquariums are a bit of an enigma. I mean, we have tanks with all this stuff decomposing in the water, yet manage to maintain high water quality and stability for extended periods of time without any real magic in terms of procedures or equipment. So what gives? Oh, and of course, not being a scientist makes it real challenging for me to make all kinds of assertions about water quality and chemistry, so I'll at least try to focus on what we want to achieve and what we can measure water quality-wise and how botanical-style aquariums seem to be able to pull it off given their vast quantities of leaves and seed pods and stuff. Now, we have a pretty good handle on which tests make the most sense for our pursuits. It's a given that ammonia, nitrite, pH, and DKH are the indicators, the key indicators, I guess, which most hobbyists will want to know about. And of course, there are the tests which give us information on the quality of the environment we've created, nitrate and phosphate. Nitrate in O3 is not necessarily considered toxic at a specific level, although a typical rule of thumb is to keep readings under 50 milligrams per liter, or better still, 20 milligrams per liter or less for most fishes at various stages of their life cycle. Although there's no agreed upon lethal dose as indicated, uh, many fishes can tolerate prolonged exposure up to 500 milligrams per liter of nitrate. Studies have revealed that prolonged exposure to elevated levels of nitrate may reduce fish's' immunity, affecting their internal functions and resistance to disease. Many fishes can adapt, to a certain extent, to a gradual increase in nitrate over time, 
although long-term physiological damage can occur. And of course, you know, some fishes are more sensitive to nitrate than others, displaying deteriorating overall health or other symptoms at much lower levels. I'm thinking in mind of like discus and, you know, angelfish, other sensitive uh, fishes. Now, one of the more interesting things about nitrate is that it can and will accumulate and rise over time in the aquarium if insufficient export mechanisms like water changes, you know, lack of chemical or biological filtration capacity, etc., exist within the aquarium. This, of course, gives the impression that fishes are doing okay when the reality is that they're being exposed to a long-term stressor. And, of course, there are many long-understood approaches to reducing these compounds in aquariums. The presence of aquatic plants long known for their utilization of nitrate as a growth factor is also considered a viable way to reduce or export nitrates, along with good overall husbandry, you know, stable fish population, proper feeding, blah, blah, blah. In fact, I imagine that with all the experimentation going on with various aquatic plants in blackwater or botanical style aquariums, at some point we may simply make the practice of including certain species, say like floating plants or whatever, as a de facto part of the nutrient export processes in our tank at some point. It might just be the way we do things. Of course, even without plants over the years, I've noticed some very interesting long-term trends regarding water quality in my botanical-style aquariums. In my botanical-filled natural-style aquariums, I've personally never observed measured elevated levels of nitrate. In fact, with good husbandry regimes in place, undetectable, at least on a hobbyist-level test kit, levels of nitrate have been the norm for my systems. I think the highest nitrate reading I've ever personally recorded in a botanical-style system, which I maintain, was around 10 milligrams per liter. Now, why is this? Okay, let me speculate a bit. I personally feel that well-maintained systems, including our heavily botanically influenced ones, offer a significant medium for the growth and proliferation of beneficial bacteria species like Nitrospira. I have a totally ungrounded theory that the presence of botanicals, although in itself a contributor to the biological load in the aquarium, also is a form of fuel to power the nitrification process. Uh, A carbon source, if you will, uh, and I think that's something that we, um, we have to think about. I think that we have to consider the fact that all this stuff is more than just bioload that can be harmful. It's a carbon source that will elevate el- levels of biological activity in an otherwise well-maintained system. Okay, sounds like a lot of cobbled together mumbo jumbo, I know, with a little bit of jargon or whatever, but I think there's something to this. I mean, when you think about it, a botanically rich aquarium with leaves and other materials fosters the growth of bacteria, fungi, biofilms, and all that stuff, and supports crustaceans and other organisms which can consume and metabolize the botanicals as they break down physically, along with fish wastes and other organics which arise as a result of the process. And it's sort of an onboard biological filtration system, if you will, with the added benefit that the fishes will consume some of these organisms. Perhaps, and I'm reaching here a bit, even the basis for a sort of food web, something that we know exists in all natural aquatic ecosystems. Something to think about. I find this to be the most exciting potential benefit of the botanical-style aquarium. In fact, I believe that once serious scientific study is conducted on this stuff, it may prove to be a foundational component of the botanical-style aquarium will you know embrace the addition and decomposition of natural materials in our aquariums as a sort of a catalyst to create stable you know productive closed ecosystems which effectively metabolize the materials within just like in nature sure it may not be the classic definition of beauty in the aquarium hobby but from a functional standpoint it's magnificent it really is and i want you to you know to to ponder that for just a moment and how important that potentially could be Now, the other measure of water quality that most of us should consider is phosphate, PO4. 
It's a salt of phosphoric acid, an inorganic chemical. It's an essential chemical for the growth of plants and other living organisms. Phosphate gets a lot of bad press in the hobby, particularly on the marine side, uh, as a contributor to the growth and proliferation of algae, which it is. However, it's really only half the equation, as algae only grows if nitrogen is also present. So it's a contributor to algae issues and an overall, you know, an overall water quality, not the main culprit. In the reef hobby, phosphate's been vilified as a growth inhibitor to coral, and all manner of additives, reactors, and removal media have been developed to combat it. And the reality, in my humble opinion, is that phosphate, although a great measure of overall water quality, tends not to become a problem in otherwise well-managed aquariums. It gets in our systems in the first place via food, and it will accumulate if mechanisms for its absorption or utilization or removal don't exist. So yeah, perform those regular water exchanges. It's yet another argument in favor of them. My head absolutely explodes when I hear hobbyists bragging that they never do water changes and their tank is thriving. I mean, you're operating on borrowed time, or are you? I ask this question with all due sincerity. I mean, could it be that the age-old dream of a perfectly balanced aquarium is possible, even when you know, what we consider foundational husbandry practices are eschewed? I couldn't say for certain why success comes to people who apparently skirt this basic principle of aquarium keeping. It does seem odd that they take such seemingly apathetic approaches to maintenance, just topping off evaporated water, feeding the fishes, replacing the filter media, and nothing else. On the other hand, is there something to it? Is it just dumb luck? Could it be that they've, you know, perhaps through no deliberate effort of their own, sorry guys, achieved some sort of import-export equilibrium and that the system metabolizes you know, all the nutrients and trace elements imparted into the water with complete efficiency? Ah, I can debate this for days. Don't start me. And I really don't know all the answers. I don't think anybody does yet. In the meantime, I'll keep doing and recommending water exchanges. Oh, and speaking of water exchanges, both nitrate and phosphate are typically present in tap water, right? So when I espouse the use of an expensive reverse osmosis deionization unit to pre-treat your tap water, I'm recommending a means to eliminate it at the source, giving you at least a good start. Uh, reverse osmosis deionization units, albeit somewhat pricey, are, in my opinion, an essential piece of equipment for any serious hobbyist. I really feel that way. In general, the water quality of our botanical-influenced natural systems is something worthy of a lot of research, experiments, and discussions within our community. There's so much interesting stuff happening in our tanks and so many things we don't know, like how very low pH aquariums are kept biologically stable. That's a whole new frontier that we're really only starting to understand. I mean, sure, there's some brave pioneers that have played with this stuff over the years, but really there hasn't been a concentrated effort on a large part of our, our hobby community. And those extremely pH, at least by hobby, low pH, by at least hobby standards levels, you know, how does the nitrogen cycle function? Archaeans. I know, they sound kind of exotic and even creepy, huh? Well, they could be our friend. We might not even be aware of their presence in our systems if they're there at all. Are they making an appearance on our low pH tanks? I'm not 100% certain, but they think they might be. Okay, I hope they might be. Now, here's a refresher for those of you who might not know what I'm talking about here. Archaeans include uh, uh, inhabitants of some of the most extreme environments on the planet. Some live near like vents in the deep ocean, you know, hydrothermal vents at temperatures well over 100 degrees centigrade. These are true extremophiles. Others reside in hot springs or in extremely alkaline or acid water. They've even been found thriving inside of the digestive tracts of cows, termites, and marine life where they produce methane. No comment here. <laughs> they live in anoxic muds and marshes. Oh, interesting. And even thrive in petroleum deposits deep underground. You know, they're pretty crazy adaptable organisms. The old saying is that if these things were six feet tall, they'd be ruling the world. Sort of comes to mind, right? I mean, yeah, they're beasts, literally. Now, could it be that some of the challenges in cycling what we define as lower pH aquariums 
are a byproduct of that sort of no man's land where the pH is too low to support a large enough population of functioning nitrosomonas and nitrobacter, but not low enough for a significant populations of archaea to make their appearance. Could it be? I'm speculating here. I can be so off base that it's not even funny. And some first year biology major who happens to be a fish geek could be reading this and just laughing at me. Now, of course, I still can't help but wonder, is this a possible explanation for some of the difficulties hobbyists have encountered in the low pH arena over the years? A biological instability caused by a poorly functioning conventional bacteria and a lack of population of these archaeans? Uh, again, a sort of a biological no man's land, right? To me, this kind of stuff is part of the reason why the mystique of low pH systems being difficult to manage has been so strong for so many years. I bet. Could it be that we just need to get a lot slower when stocking low pH systems? Perhaps, yeah, probably. And then you think about the pH levels of some natural, well-populated blackwater habitats that fall into the 2.8 to 3.5 pH range, which is insanely acidic. You have to wonder, what is it that makes life so adaptable to this environment? You have to wonder if this same process can, and indeed does, date place in our aquariums. And you have to wonder if we as a hobby are just perhaps simply aren't working with these tanks in a correct manner, particularly when they fall into what we call extreme pH ranges. I wonder if the crashes and fears of all sorts of bad stuff we've been talking about in the hobby for so long were simply a result of not quite understanding the operating system of the tank, so to speak. Things just work differently at these low pH levels in nature and in our aquariums. Even the toxicity of ammonia is different at lower pH levels. It may be that these are really not all that challenging once we have the understanding, the means, like reliable methods, products, etc., to reduce pH and maintain it in a stable range, and the experience of doing this. Perhaps running low pH systems is just like operating a reef system. It just takes an understanding of what to do, why you do it, and a reliable means to accomplishment. There's a lot of strings to pull out here. I think the secret's out there somewhere. I wonder who, who among you is running a low pH aquarium out there. What are your challenges? What are your concerns? Have you had success? And of course, there's much to learn about the function, both biologically and environmentally, of deep leaf litter beds in the aquarium. The potential for significant developments in establishing and managing these types of aquariums is there. We're already getting a better handle on the idea of utilizing botanicals, especially leaf litter, for multiple functions in the aquarium, ranging from food production to nutrient sequestration to possibly even denitrification. Even if the processes are not new to the aquarium hobby, the approach that we take and the viability and performance of a botanical-style aquarium is different. It opens up all sorts of interesting avenues for us to explore. We've taken our first tentative footsteps beyond what has been accepted and understood in the hobby, and we're starting to ask new questions, make new observations, and yeah, even a few discoveries which will evolve the aquarium hobby in the future. Through it all, the key to success in these outer reaches of the hobby will be patience, dedication, and a willingness to move into territory that hasn't been, you know, that's been sort of taboo for so many years in the aquarium hobby. So who's up for this? Stay methodical, stay diligent, stay studious, stay experimental, stay curious. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman, Tannin Aquatics. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tannin.